I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first 19 verses of this chapter together this morning. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign King, the one who rules and reigns on high over all that you have made. You are the transcendent one. And yet you are the one who is so intimately involved in all manner of detail of this world. And pray that such truth would calm our restless hearts, bring correction where there is wandering, bring comfort in times of sorrow. And we pray that this message of the gospel, wherever we might turn to on a Sunday morning or evening from your word, would nurture our hearts, encourage us toward persevering grace, as we look to the work of our Savior, seeking to grow in our knowledge of His work and our affection toward Him. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches, you know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, 
Please let there be given to your servants two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servants when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servants in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Perhaps like me, at some point in your childhood, you had a kaleidoscope. They're considered vintage toys now, so I guess that means I'm a lot older than I'd like to admit. But you might remember looking through those little viewfinders and seeing various shapes and colors of the bits of plastic and glass and being mesmerized at the beauty of what you see. When we think of the Word of God with all of its various forms of literature, from historical narrative to gospel, to epistle, to prophecy, to apocalyptic literature. Like that kaleidoscope, with its variegated colors and shapes put together, forming something wonderful, so the Word of our God has a singular divine author who reveals himself and his wonderful plan of salvation through various forms of literary genre. And in a narrative like this from 2 Kings 5, we learn a great deal about the power and majesty of God as He tenderly leads us to understand the need that we each have for cleansing, the need that we have for conversion, for faith and repentance in the Christian life. For all of the differences that might exist between the varying people groups of this world, For all of the barriers of language and culture and distance, for all that separates us in terms of our political views or economic gaps, for all that divides, there is one universal truth that binds us together. We are all in need of cleansing. We are all in need of faith and repentance. And it is the sovereign Lord alone through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who can accomplish such in our lives. So as we look at this narrative from the Word of God, let's notice first this morning the absolute sovereignty of God. This is our first point this morning, the total and absolute sovereignty of the Lord. Now you might remember after the death of King Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And this divided people of God lived through some very tumultuous times. In both north and south, there were weak kings, there were foolish kings, there was the occasional good king, but there were also some very wicked kings. And during a particularly dark period of time in the nation of Israel in the north, the Lord God raised up these two consecutive or successive prophets in the ministries of Elijah followed by Elisha. Prophets from God who called the people of the Lord to repentance. And we find this great concentration of miraculous signs during the public ministry of Elisha in particular, one of which we read about here in the life of Naaman. Now, through these books of First and Second Kings from Scripture, originally one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, there is a record of all sorts of seemingly unstable and disjointed historical events. But there is an underlying theme throughout this historical record 
and that is the sovereignty of the Lord God. And when we speak about the sovereignty of God or when we speak about his providence, we are stating that God is the absolute ruler of all that happens in this world, for he is the great king who is enthroned on high. And so all of the activity that happens in this world, from the monumental down to the most minuscule, is because God is bringing about his eternal plan. The Puritan William Gurnall noted that as there is nothing too great to be above his power, so there is nothing too little to be beneath his care. This is a doctrine, this doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty that we should never tire of cultivating in our own lives. It's a doctrine that should bring to us great comfort to know that there are no accidents that there is nothing that happens outside of the watchful care of God, that there is no such thing as fate or luck or chance or any random event in this world. There are no meaningless events. And there is great comfort in knowing that this sovereign Lord is at the same time our loving Heavenly Father, who is filled with love, tenderness, and care for His children. Pastor Terry Johnson comments, whatever my circumstances may be, positive or negative, easy or difficult, I am always dealing with my Almighty Father, and He is always dealing with His beloved child. And so let's notice how the sovereignty of God is evident, even in these details of our text as the scene is set for us. This character Naaman is introduced to us with this glowing language. He is commander of the army of the king of Syria. He is a great man. He is highly favored, a man of valor. We might say that he is popular among his peers, that he is highly regarded by his superiors. In fact, his name means favored one, and he is even respected by his subordinates. And why? The verse tells us in verse 1, the text tells us clearly, because by him the Lord in his sovereignty has given him victory. And so our God is no regional God relegated to some portion of this world. He is not a God who rules merely over the events of the lives of his children, but his rule and his reign extends to all of creation. And so even the victory of this man Naaman, part of the Syrian army, a foreign nation, even that falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Listen to a couple of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so it is God who has made Naaman great. God has given him success. God has granted him military victory all for his divine purposes. And I think this is an important thing for us to be mindful of, not only in our reading of Scripture, but as we interpret the events of the world around us. That whether a text is as explicit as it is here in verse 1 or not, this is a universal truth. Our God is in control of all that happens. And so as we think about the horrors unfolding in the land of Ukraine, we acknowledge that the Lord is sovereignly in control of all things. 
And at the same time, it is right and good for us to pray for an end to such hostility, to pray for the preservation of precious life, and to pray that many would come to trust in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus, even through such trials and hardships, knowing that the Lord has purpose in all things. And so in the life of Naaman, the Lord has sovereignly put him in this position. But there is something else that the Lord is sovereign over in our text. Though Naaman is a mighty man of valor, filled with great worth and value, highly popular, he is a leper. And because of this, he faces to lose it all. It is this little spot that is a huge problem for him. Now, there are all sorts of various skin diseases in the ancient Near East that would fit into this category of leprosy. Thankfully, we won't go into the details of such things this morning. But know that there are varying levels of contagion and differing degrees of erosion upon one's flesh. But regardless of what type of leprosy Naaman possessed, one thing was true. He was unclean. And all of those glowing things that were said about him are threatened. If this problem is not addressed, he will be shunned spiritually. He will be cut off socially. And he will be destitute financially. This one spot threatens to ruin it all and to destroy Naaman's life. And we know that this is a big deal because of the extreme measures that he goes through to try to find healing. This is no trip to the local dermatologist, put some aloe on it and come back in a week or two. I don't think it's reading too much into the text to presume that this is a very serious condition, permanent, and perhaps life-threatening, at the very least threatening to all that he viewed as important for his identity, value, worth, sense of security. But in all of this, the Lord is actively at work in all of these details of Naaman's life, directing him toward the wonder of salvation. You see, just because Naaman does not realize it yet, just because he does not acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty over this event in his life does not make it any less true. And it can be a wonderful thing in our own lives to mature us in our growth in grace as we reflect upon the ways in which the Lord directed our steps to bring us to salvation, to continue to mature us in the Christian life. If you do not know the Lord, to perhaps consider the ways in which He directed your steps even this day to come here, to be with God's people, and to hear the call and promise from the Word of the Lord. But there's more that we learn about the sovereignty of God as this text opens up for us that we see in the life of Naaman's servant girl. See, the land of Syria, or as some of your texts might translate it, the land of Aram is just north of Israel. And while there might be periods of peace between these two nations, they are by no means allies with one another. And so there would be this constant tension and occasional skirmish across one another's border. And on one such occasion, arrayed in Israel, perhaps arrayed that was even led by Naaman himself, this young girl is taken from her home. Her family is perhaps killed, and she is enslaved as a servant 
in Naaman's household, tending to his wife. If you think of the hierarchy of a social scale, there really is no one lower than her. She was a foreigner with no rights or privileges. She was young and generally inexperienced with life. She is a girl, and as a young woman, she would be treated with less value at this particular time of history. And she was a slave with no life of her own, as it were. We could probably not think of a greater contrast between the greatness of Naaman and the lowliness of this servant girl. And while we never learn the name of this young girl, and while we know very little about her, she says something absolutely extraordinary in verse 3. Oh, that my Lord were with the prophet of Samaria, that he might be cured of his leprosy. And this is a remarkable statement, I think, for many reasons. Notice first that it confesses submission to the will of God. She's not living in bitterness or in anger at her circumstances, but she is trusting in the Lord even in less than pleasant surroundings. It's remarkable because it speaks of her faith that the Lord can heal. Though she's enslaved, she doesn't question the sovereignty of the Lord, but she knows that his power and kindness remain within his nature. And it's remarkable in that she actually cares for Naaman. We could imagine if we were in her situation, if we knew of such truth, how we might hold it to ourselves, thinking, you're getting exactly what you deserve. And I hope that you die in your leprosy and lose it all. Perhaps that would lead to her freedom and allow her to go back to the land of Israel. But instead, her heart is filled with compassion. To me, her statement is so remarkable because it seems as though her thoughts are taken so captive to the Lord that her heart is so filled with trust in God that this is just a ruminating of what resides within as she utters these words, wanting her master to find healing, to find salvation. It is out of the heart that her mouth speaks. And I think there's a valuable lesson that we can learn from this lowly and nameless servant girl that anyone in Christ can and ought to bear faithful witness to the Lord's salvation, that we ought to have compassion for the eternal souls of all who are around us who are lost. And don't ever be intimidated to bear witness to your Savior, no matter how old or how young you might be, no matter how intimidating that situation might seem, no matter how little it seems that you know you can be used of the Lord to speak a word of truth in his name, boldness and comfort. We might put it like this, the more that your heart is captivated by the sovereign rule of the Lord God, the more that this becomes a functional and not just a confessional truth in your life, the more your life will bear witness for his name. That brings us to the second thing that I'd like for us to notice as we move along in the text in our second main point this morning, and that is responding to the Lord's sovereignty. And so, though the Lord is sovereign over all things, not all, of course, are looking to acknowledge the Lord's sovereignty, nor are all bowing, we might say, joyfully to that sovereignty. 
Let's look at three different responses to the Lord's sovereignty in the text. One is presumption. We might even say entitlement. Naaman takes this word of hope spoken by the servant girl, and he relays it to the king of Syria who composes this letter, this formal request for him to take to the king of Israel. Cure Naaman, my servant, of his leprosy. It's more of a demand than a request. And the amount of wealth that Naaman takes with him in verse 5 is not silver and gold that is taken from his own resources, but this is borrowed from the king's treasure house to show the king of Israel how valuable this man is to the king of Syria. And so he takes with him some 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, an amount in our own time that would be in the millions of dollars. And along with that, we read that there are 10 changes of clothing. Now, these are not outfits that are put together by some fashion designer at the local Walmart supercenter. These are valuable clothes, perhaps interwoven even with gold, used by royal dignitaries or those that serve in the priesthood. Now, at this point in the narrative, both the king of Syria and Naaman are operating from a posture of power, presumption of their own inherent value and worth. We could say that Naaman is fine being a recipient of good things from God without acknowledging the God who is the giver of such things. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, he has exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creation. And so rather than acknowledge the sovereignty of God, they are more interested in their own achievements. They are living in arrogant disregard toward God's sovereignty. But notice that there is another response to the Lord's sovereignty, which is fear. We see this in the response of the king of Israel in verse 7. Now, the king at this time is probably Joram, one of the sons of that wicked king Ahab that you can read about in the book of 1 Kings, though we don't read explicitly of the name of the king of Israel or the king of Syria in our text. Now, of course, the king of Israel and the servant girl are both from the same covenant community. They are both Israelites and have the promises of the Lord but their response could not be more different. She was filled with trust. She knew that God could heal her master. But the king of Israel, the one who should be modeling for the covenant people of God what it is like to trust in the Lord, is instead filled with distrust. And there's this extreme response on his part of shock, even grief, as he rips his clothes But this response reflects a heart of unbelief and distrust. As he says in verse 7, crying out, Am I God that I can cure this man of his leprosy? No, of course you're not. Of course you can't do anything to intervene. But the God of heaven and earth who you claim to worship is capable. Do what the king should do. Cry out to God. Don't rip your garments in an act of self-pity. The king goes on to lament in verse 7, look, this king of Syria is just seeking a quarrel with me. 
Now, it's certainly plausible during certain times of truce that one king might look for an excuse to invade the nation of another, but still there is no trust in the Lord on the part of the king of Israel, no acknowledgement of the Lord's sovereignty. As we might describe the king like this, that his response is more one of functional atheism, living as though God is just not around, is just not involved. And just think for a moment in your own life about how often this is reflective of our own response to trials and hardship. And we may not rip our clothes like the king of Israel, but don't our hearts oftentimes reflect the same distrust or self-pity or self-absorption when we go through hardships or trial? And instead of frustration toward God, we should be bowing our heads in prayer, trusting in the Lord who rules over all, looking to His grace, and believing in His absolute sovereign care. But notice that there's a final response to the Lord's sovereignty in the narrative, which we see in the life of Elisha in verse 8, and his response is one of confidence and trust. Notice how Elisha hears of the response of the king as he tears his garments. He rebukes the king for his distrust. Elisha believes that the Lord can heal this man, and so he tells the king to send Naaman to him, and he will handle it as a representative of the living God. And so as Naaman comes into the land of Israel, as he approaches the door of Elisha, he learns a valuable lesson about his need for conversion. And this is our third point this morning, and that is the nature of true faith and repentance, the nature of faith and repentance. And so Naaman comes, notice he is ready to pay, willing to pay anything to purchase his cleansing, to show his greatness and worth. He brings the silver and the gold and the changes of clothing. He brings with him horses and chariots and accompanying soldiers and servants, all meant to let this prophet of Israel know just how important he is, even deserving of healing. You may have noticed that so far up to this point in the text, Naaman has been dealing only with the elites, those who are sort of at the top rung of society. It is a servant girl who spoke to Naaman's wife who relayed that message to him. He interacts with the king of Syria, who then interacts with the nation of Israel through their king. And even as he comes to the house, house of Elisha, He expects that this powerful man of God, this one who represents this regional deity in his mind, will come out to speak to him. But Elisha doesn't even come out of his home, but sends a messenger to him. And it's really at this point that things begin to unravel for Naaman and his worldview. Everything that Naaman thought in terms of greatness inherent value and worth is all about to be shattered. What Naaman needs is to humble himself before the Lord, and it is God who begins to expose the pride within Naaman's heart, showing him that he has a need for humility, and God begins this process by sending out to him 
a lowly messenger. Gerhardus Voss states that we must abandon self-reliance and rely wholly, fully, completely upon the Word of God. For Naaman, he must, you see, relocate the ultimate resting point in his life away from self to the God of Scripture. And the instruction from this messenger that comes from Elisha is offensive to Naaman. Go and dip yourself in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be clean. You will be restored. Now, we might wonder to ourselves, why doesn't Naaman just do it? He's come all this way already. Why does he respond in verse 11 with such anger? Why does he begin to storm away? Why is this so offensive to him? We don't have to wonder because the text tells us in verse 11, I thought that he would come out in a display of power and authority in some sort of dramatic way, call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over me as a leper or over my place of defilement, speak some magical words of incantation and bring healing. Perhaps Naaman has in mind that remarkable event that happened under the ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah had that showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Of course, Naaman wasn't there, but undoubtedly he heard about the power of the God of Israel and perhaps he was expecting something equally impressive. Or maybe Elisha, he was hoping to get from Elisha some impossible task to perform, recognizing his valor and worth. After all, he brought with him his horses and his chariots. He's a great military leader in his own right. And so maybe like a scene out of some epic novel, he's waiting for Elisha to tell him to scale the highest mountain, to get a clump of snow and bring it back for his tea to go and find that fierce enemy behind an impenetrable wall, break it down and slay him and bring back a lock of his hair. Do some task to show his worth, to show his courage, but the Lord will have none of it. You see, ultimately these instructions are offensive to him because the method of healing seems preposterous. If I'm simply to dip myself in water, if all I need is a bath, then why not the fresh, cool waters of my own land? Why this tepid, semi-stagnant and dirty water of the land of Israel? It's offensive to him because anyone can do that. Are you telling me that there is no difference between me and a lowly servant? Are you telling me that I can be cleansed by believing the Word and receiving grace? See, of course, it's not some medicinal power that is inherent within the Jordan River. Naaman is the only person in all of Scripture who finds healing in the Jordan. This is not some fountain of youth, but this is a wonderful object lesson to help Naaman see what his real problem is and where the real solution lies. You see, the real question is, 
what exactly needs to be healed. Naaman is a likable enough guy. He's popular, he's well-loved, but his problem goes much deeper than a spot upon his flesh. His problem is the pride within his own heart. He presumes that he can do something to merit the favor of God. He presumes that he is on a higher plane than others. But when he displays his anger, that arrogant heart within is revealed. And if you don't think that you have arrogance or pride within your heart, then just reflect upon the ways in which you get agitated or angry when circumstances don't work out the way that you want. I've thought in my own life about the times when I reason, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I feel like I'm really making some progress in dealing with those presenting sins of selfishness or irritability. But then in an instant, when something doesn't go the way that I want, the Lord exposes my heart of pride, reminding me that I am in desperate need of His grace. You see, leprosy in itself is not sin, but it's a wonderful picture of sin. Because just like leprosy, our sin makes us unclean. It is incurable. It isolates us. It clings to us, and we cannot just shake it off. As much as you might like to think that it's not that big of a deal in your life, it eats away destroying your life, taking deeper and deeper root until you die. You see, there's really only two classifications of people. There are those who humble themselves before the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him, or there are those who are proud, trusting in themselves, deluding themselves into believing that the biggest problem in life is somewhere out there with others or circumstances, not here within your own heart. But thankfully, the Lord is not done with Naaman. He again uses the words of a lowly servant to speak truth to him. And notice in verses 13 and 14 how there is emphasis upon the word of God. Listen to these great words of the prophet. These are none other than the words of God. These are wonderful words, words of healing, wash and be clean. And just as the Lord used that faithful testimony of the lowly servant girl, He uses the faithful word of these servants as they implore Him to believe God's word, to obey, and to find healing. And Naaman listens. He lays aside his pride. He heeds the word of the prophet of the Lord. He dips himself into the Jordan River. And it's not just that spot, but his entire flesh is renewed, restored, and he is clean. And what we see is a wonderful display of God's grace in the conversion of Naaman. This is nothing less than the faith and repentance in the Word of God. He's not just cleansed in his flesh, but he's cleansed of that greater and deeper need. And we see, I think, Naaman's repentance displayed in a number of ways. His repentance is first displayed in the fact that he is no longer hostile to the Word of God, 
but walks in obedience, doing what God's word tells him. And he makes in verse 15, notice this statement of belief, his confession of faith. Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth, but in Israel. And this is important to keep in mind as you move along in the text. And he speaks about returning to the land of Syria and accompanying his master into the temple of Rimon. Not because he's going there to worship, but to fulfill his duty as an underling from his master. Because he acknowledges that there is one God alone in all of the earth. His repentance is also evident in his desire to give something to Elisha. See, prior to this, he viewed his silver, gold, changes of clothing, and so forth as a way to purchase healing. But as his heart is changed, he wants to give something out of gratitude for what the Lord has done to heal him. And his repentance, I think, is further evidence at the end of the text in his desire to worship the living God. He asks as he returns to the land of Syria that he be allowed to take these two mule loads of earth as an act of solidarity with the covenant people of God. Perhaps earth that can be constructed into an altar upon which he can offer sacrifices to the Lord. But even though his motives are different in wanting to give this gift, the reason that Elisha refuses the gift of Naaman is because he wants Naaman to understand the nature of grace. We read in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The Apostle Paul in Titus 3 verse 3 writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So you see, to pay in some way, whether through some sort of financial gift, whether some contribution of your own morality, even just a sprinkle of your own intellectual insight, would be to make salvation somehow about you. But the gospel is free, though it calls for you to surrender all. The gospel is free, and yet it calls for you to repent, to turn away from your former way of life and your former way of thinking, to forsake your pride and your sense of entitlement, to depart from pursuing evil and selfishness, to put away any sort of false worship or false trust. I turn often to our shorter catechism, question and answer 87, that talks about repentance unto life. In answering that question, the catechism reads that repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred toward that sin, desire with full purpose of to turn from it and endeavor after new obedience. And so repentance, you see, is both turning from sin and turning toward the Lord. It's turning our life over to Him and desiring to walk in obedience out of gratitude for our salvation. 
a common question at this point that is raised by many is how do I know? How do I know if my faith is genuine? How do I know if my repentance is sufficient? How do I know if I'm truly saved or truly trusting in Christ for salvation? Well, consider where repentance is evidence in your life. Joel Beakey says very simply, those who know God listen to His Word and desire to listen to His Word. They repent of sin. They desire to see that sin more clearly, not that they might somehow revel in it in some sort of self-effacement, but to desire to grow in hatred toward it. Keep His commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And so where in your own life do you see humility where there was once pride? Do you see love for the Lord where there was once disdain? Do you see trust in God's goodness where there was once indifference? Do you see heartfelt confession of sin and acknowledgement of sin whereas before there was merely blame shifting and defensiveness? Is there grief that you have offended God where there was once self-indulgence with no remorse? Is there sorrow only because your sins bring hardship into your life or sorrow because you have grieved the living God who has been so kind and gracious to you? The story goes that there was a young chambermaid who wished to be admitted into membership at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon pastored. And as he interviewed her asking about her profession of faith in Christ, he asked her how she had seen the Lord work in her life. Where was repentance evident? And she thought for a moment and replied, well, I sweep under the mat now. You see, she recognized evidence in her life of a changed heart and that she desired to live her life before the face of God, for the glory of God. And so you see this need for cleansing really is the great leveler, isn't it? We are all defiled. We are all unclean and full of unspeakable wickedness within our hearts. And there is no hope And there is no cure apart from God's healing in Christ Jesus the Lord. But like Naaman, not like the king of Israel, rend your hearts and not your garments. Come to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In closing here, this writing from Thomas Boston, he says, there is mercy for the one who repents and comes to Christ. The good news for sinners, and therefore the good news for us all, is that if you repent, all your sins shall be blotted out, and you will be embraced in the arms of His mercy. May the Lord, the sovereign Lord, who has directed each of your steps here this day to hear the truth from His Word and be with the people of the Lord. May He be pleased to work such humility within the hearts of us all.